Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to Mitch Kidder, the co-owner of The Studio, a photography studio in Anchorage, Alaska that specializes in high school senior photos. He also works in cybersecurity and recently completed his MBA at the University of Alaska Anchorage. He's 34 years old, and in the winter of 2019, he was diagnosed with leukemia. The only indication that something wasn't right were frequent nosebleeds that ran for about an hour or two each day for a month. After visiting a doctor to get his blood tested, there were signs of blood cancer, and because of the aggressive type, he needed to be medevaced to the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. By supporting Crude, you make it possible to produce stories like the recent series by author and journalist K. Jared Mayer. It's about Alaskan resilience during the COVID-19 pandemic. In it, Jared talks to a musician, a chef, a bar owner, and a sex worker in order to understand how the service industry in Anchorage has been affected. Here's Jared with the first paragraph from Bruised, Never Beaten, A Story of Alaska Spirit, Part 2, The Saloon. Chilkoot Charlies, perhaps better known as Coots. Either name immediately conjures vivid imagery. The cabin-like etched exterior, beer keg stools and stools that look like half-split logs, sawdust and wood chip covered floors, Perhaps you think of the stage by the long bar on the north side, where local comics and bands perform. Maybe you think about the blue-lit room to the right of the main entrance, where the bar itself generates a coat of ice across its surface. No doubt some minds will leap immediately to the birdhouse, with its sloped floors and where the walls and ceiling are covered in the underwear of the drunken daring. Coots has long been a staple in Anchorage's midtown, sprawling out next to the big windmill on Spinard, its walls filled to the brim with memories, experiences, and the occasional chaos. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Mantier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Mitch Kidder. Mitch says that he's still not sure how to categorize his cancer diagnosis and everything that followed it. He experienced a mixture of emotions. In the beginning, there was denial, followed by shock, then exhaustion and guilt. There were moments of despair and ones of overwhelming gratitude. It's a story that he hopes has the potential to help other people going through a similar experience. But he also doesn't want being a cancer survivor to define his life and his identity. So here he is, Mitch Kidder. (laughs) This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Mitch, 
you're into guns, right? Totally into guns. I really, really enjoy uh, getting out into target shooting. So I've seen these posts that you make these videos, like you going through SWAT situations. What what are those all about? <laughs> well, that, that's uh, kind of you to say. I, you know, some people call it LARPing, um, where you, know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you just dress up in the gear. I, I don't know. It's it's about having a lot of fun. Um, I want to be more proficient with uh, my firearms. Uh, I, I want to be uh, able to use them, uh, not just from stationary positions, but be able to, to use them on the move. Um, and uh, really just that it, in some ways, like that for my Instagram anyway, it just ends up looking cool. Like, oh, there goes that mm -hmm. dude. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those in, in the moment, like, you're like, oh, it, it's really cool. And then you look back on it a year later and you're like, oh, there goes the LARPer again. Like, what is he doing? <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's a really fun hobby. You get to uh, hang out with friends and, and uh, it's a skill to practice and get better at. Do you have any new guns? Uh, you know, I, I don't right now. Uh, I think my last one was maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm eyeing some new ones, but uh, nothing recent yet. And how did you get interested in guns? Hmm. You know, I, um, in high school, I played a game called Airsoft, which is kind of like paintball, but with BBs. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's just like, one level up from playing war when you're kids and, and, and having cap guns and things. Um, anyway, so it started with airsoft, uh, playing games with friends, and then that evolved into target shooting, target practice, borrowing friends' guns, and um, then soon enough it was time to get my own. So I originally reached out to you at the beginning of 2020 after I read about your leukemia diagnosis on social media, but you said you were still a little too raw to talk about it. But then you reached out to me the other day and said you were ready to talk about it. What has changed since then? Yeah, I think in the moment, um, I don't know, it, it was a pretty scary diagnosis. Um, the type of leukemia I have is uh, called ALL, and it's a more rare uh, variant of it. Um, and there's still a lot of early research being done about how to treat it um, and and how to, to mitigate some of that. Um, and anyway, so I, I think I was um, logically wrapped up in the treatment plan and, and what that looks like. And then emotionally, I think, um, was really wrapped up in, uh, <laughs> I suppose, your own mortality. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't I don't know it. It. Uh, when, when the message came across, it was like, oh, man, I, I, I want to, but I, I just can't. And I, I think I, I may have even, like, uh, delayed responding for, like, a week or two. Because, mm -hmm. um, again, I, I wanted to, but I, I just couldn't, couldn't get there. Yeah, and I think that with, with those, like, um, situations where you're kind of waiting to respond, I think that at least in my experience, you want the response to be thoughtful, as thoughtful as like either the question or the other response like warrants. Right. And that's a great way to, to put it. Yeah. I, I didn't want to like shut you down and say no, but it was like, uh, Hey, uh, not, not now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and I think maybe a connected component of it too is, uh, chemo brain. Um, 
I wasn't expecting that as a, a symptom or a side effect of the, the medication, but I felt really, uh, oh, really dumb for <laughs> quite a while with that, that chemo, mm -hmm. uh, really slow in my, my thought process. And so, um, uh, anyway, that, I think that was also weighing into it is like, oh, my, my brain's not working as fast as it should be. Could you explain that chemo brain a little more? Sure. Uh, for me, it felt mm, kind of like a, a fogginess. Perhaps if you've uh, stayed up way too late uh, a few nights in a row and you're just exhausted. Um, uh, I remember uh, Shale and my husband uh, asking me some kind of a thing about uh, the studio, our photography studio. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, a question that I should have been able to answer easily. And I just kind of stared at him and was like, I, I don't know. I I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, I guess that the if I were to to describe a different, a similar feeling I felt before is just feeling really tired, uh, and the way that uh, when you're tired, your brain just works so much slower mm -hmm. uh, than than you would normally. You know, that's such a scary thought. Um, when I think about it, is like losing losing your mind a little bit or losing kind of your brain capacity, especially, um, you know, I've, I've read the things that you post on social media and you're a smart guy. And so I, I think I can make this, this assumption that like me, um, my whole work revolves around my brain and to lose all of that is pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a fair assessment. Um, one of the things that is scary going through it is um, you're not sure and and doctors have a difficult time telling you whether those effects are permanent or temporary. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, my chemo treatment plan um, is kind of a, a phased approach. Uh, and so uh, while I was down in Seattle, it was really intense treatments two or three times a week, um, getting loaded up with all of the chemo stuff. Um, and then uh, now it's moved into this maintenance phase uh, where I take a little bit of chemo every day and then get some infusions once a month. Um, but uh, I stopped that kind of intensive chemo in September last year, and it really felt like it took till around New Year, so about three months before I felt like I had most of my cognition back, mm -hmm. uh, that, that I felt like I was probably operating at 50 to 60%. And it slowly ramped up over time, but uh, it definitely felt uh, not not a hundred percent for for quite a while. Yeah, it, the, those chemicals just stick in your system for so long. Can you tell me what your life was like before your diagnosis? Sure. Um, well, I'm not trying to think of how to to answer that. Um, you know, I think. Uh, before diagnosis, um, uh, I was in school for my MBA. Um, I had recently transitioned uh, careers from uh, uh, marketing and working in cybersecurity then. Um, and uh, uh, we had just bought a house maybe a, a year before the diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess those are some of the things that, that were going on uh, beforehand. And so you're, you're in school pursuing an MBA and 
I'm sure you also had a routine, you know, get a cup of coffee um, before that or after that, you know, make breakfast. Um, and I guess I'm just trying to understand, like, it's always so interesting and maybe a little sad to see how our goals and our perspectives can change when a bomb like that is dropped on our entire world and it forces us to refocus our understanding of life and even like appreciation for people. Yeah. You know, the leading up to my diagnosis, a, a few things were, were happening. Um, I had this bloody nose that wouldn't stop. Um, it would, I guess it would stop from time to time from day to day, but for about a month, I would have a, a bloody nose where it would run for an hour or two once a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was getting to the point that it was pretty embarrassing. I'm trying to attend meetings at work and I'm having to excuse myself because my nose is gushing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I thought, okay, well, I'll go to uh, one of the dock inbox places and they have a chemical they can uh, put on it to cauterize it to get it stopping from bleeding. I don't know if it was dry air or what it was. Um, and anyway, uh, I went in and they said, oh, well, let's do uh, some blood work up on you. And I said, okay, fine. And about then the, the nose had stopped bleeding altogether. Um, and, uh, so there wasn't anything for, for them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually in uh, finals finals week. So I go to school, uh, I'm giving a presentation. It's a group presentation and my phone is vibrating. And of course you, you turn it off and it like over and over and over the phone keeps vibrating. Uh, so finally the, the presentation gets done. I step out in the hallway and it's the doctor and, and he says, hey, your blood numbers don't look right. Uh, you need to go to the, the ER right away. I said, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll get there. I've got, I've got to finish up the, the group project and then I'll be there. And he said, no, you need to leave now. Um, so uh, luckily UAA is really close to Providence. Walked, <laughs> I drove across the street um, and it was, you know, it's just a really surreal experience. They, they uh, check you in, they start taking your blood, they're doing all these tests on you. Um, and other than the bloody nose, I felt fine. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I wasn't experiencing any other symptoms, everything felt normal. And so uh, I remember being, uh, for lack of a better word, like chained up to the hospital bed with all of these sensors and things attached to me. And I'm trying to get my other finals done uh, for the semester because it, it just seems mm-hmm. like a minor inconvenience. Like, oh, let's just get this done with and let's get out of here. Yeah. Um, and that only only uh, after a few hours do that they start uh, talking about uh, that it's likely some type of blood cancer. Um, related to that, they they uh, said it's because of the, the type it is, it needs more intensive uh, testing and treatment than is available in Anchorage. And uh, so they said that I need to go to Seattle to the SCCA, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Mm-hmm. And I said, great, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll book a flight and go down. And they said, no, you need to go down on a medevac. Uh, if you uh, have an, an event while you're in the air, um, they'll have to make an emergency landing. So no, you'll have to take a medevac. So again, early in the, in the day, uh, I was feeling fine except for a bloody nose. I was doing my finals at school and now I'm being told I have to take a medevac down to Seattle. <laughs> yeah. It was the craziest thing. Um, and I would say probably for two or three weeks down in Seattle, while we started getting up and running on, on the treatment, um, I still felt pretty fine and normal. And so I was 
wanting to continue with my schoolwork and continue uh, with my my work uh, during the day job. Um, and it was only later, once the, the chemo started kicked in, that I, I needed to slow down. You know what's really interesting about that is that, you know, throughout all of this, you're still grasping on to kind of that that familiar reality, even though, you know, you're, you're in the process of that reality just being no more. Tell me more. Or, uh, I'm not sure I understand. You know, throughout this entire, like, uh, situation so far, you know, you go to the dock in the box, um, then you're, you're at school, you're right. Like you're, you're totally in that mode. I'm a student. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I need to get the grades. I need to, you know, get this degree, then move on to the next thing. And right. You're, you're in that, that mode. Um, and so even something as like immediate that needed such immediate attention, um, that a doctor blows up your phone and then tells you, Hey, you need to get to an ER now, you know, and, and still at least the response that I'm hearing here is, um, okay, I'll get there when I need to, or I'll get there when I can, you know? So, so it's almost like that pushing against the current reality for, uh, what's about to come. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense that, you know, that, um, sometimes it's referred to as cognitive dissonance and that's where the signals from outside your body are, are different than what are inside your body. And, uh, I think I was really experiencing that. I, I feel like I know my own body well. And so I was like, I, I feel fine. And so this is just somebody overreacting to, to me and, or maybe the, the test is wrong. They, they don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, it really didn't feel urgent, uh, despite what the, the doctor was saying in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I just keep thinking about how terrifying having a doctor call you kind of incessantly until you answer and then, you know, telling you to do something with like such immediacy. Like that's that's something from a movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I don't know if my um emotion at the time was reading it as terrifying. I think that that came later, like almost maybe a month or two later. Mm -hmm. Um but in, in the moment, it was really more of a frustration of like, good Lord, I'm trying to get my stuff done right here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're, you're in the way. Um, and I think, um, you know, before this diagnosis, I, I've known people who uh, have experienced cancer uh, and uh, have, have worked through it. Um, but it definitely never seemed like something that would touch me, uh, that, that I would get diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so it never seemed like a possibility that that would happen to me. And so it, it took me a little while to adjust to, okay, I've got cancer. And then uh, as you start researching the type I had uh, of the ALL uh, type of leukemia, um, I think the terrifying part is when you start looking uh, in the medical journals and start doing research about the type I had and, and the long-term prognosis of it is, is pretty negative. Um, uh, but that, that's, I guess that, that was kind of like the initial thing. It's kind of like when you Google your symptoms when you're sick and then like the worst possible thing comes up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so similarly, when you, when you Google uh, this type of, of cancer, you see that like, okay, well, the survivability rate uh, after five years is somewhere around 20%. Mm -hmm. um, and so that there's an 80% chance that you die in the next five years. And, and I think that's when I started uh, 
more of the, the terrified and the and kind of gripping with the, the seriousness of the situation. Mm-hmm. What kinds of conversations were you and your husband Shalem having? You know, I think what um, a, a huge factor that contributed to the success that I've had in my treatment so far is the support that uh, Shalem and my mom um, and my aunt and the rest of the family provided. Um, they uh, really kept the positive focus on what could be done, what uh, new technology, new advancements had come out for treating this particular uh, cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having their support was was everything. And I'm, I'm confident that um, we would have had a different outcome uh, if I didn't have their support. And so I uh, went from the the, the emotional roller coaster of uh, this can't happen to me. This isn't happening to me. Now it's happening. Start gripping your mortality of like, okay, there's an 80% chance that I die at the end of this. Um, and then rising up out of that with their support, um, uh, encouraging and, and continuing to find other research um, mm-hmm. about the, the new, uh, the new treatments that are out there. So did that support system um, your mom, your husband, your aunt, do you feel like maybe they, they helped you out during some of the darker times? Absolutely. Um, man. Yeah, there were some, um, uh, some dark times and, um, uh, having them there to be the, the positive support, um, to let me know that it would be okay. Um, to, uh, take care of the things that normally I would take care of. Um, and, and by that, I mean like scheduling appointments or, uh, the finances of, of a situation, um, uh, taking notes or doing research on details. Uh, again, my, uh, I was experiencing a lot of that chemo brain, um, mm-hmm. and their support was everything. Um, I imagine it, it was, well, I know it was hard for them. Um, I, uh, am a big guy. Uh, I'm tall, uh, and, uh, I'm also a big guy and I lost a lot of weight, um, through the, the treatments, mm-hmm. um, became really lethargic and it, it, um, became difficult for me to get up out of the of the chair i i would need help sometimes to be able to stand up um Mm -hmm. and so i imagine that was difficult for them to see me in that way but they were able to see me in that way um but still provide a positive outlook Uh, and it it wasn't rose-colored glasses ever but it it was a hey we can do this together let's work on this together um we've got the, the best treatment team available and you've got the best support team available and, and we can get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I imagine it was really tough for them, but I could not have done it without them. And if you don't mind me asking, what did those darker times look like? I think one of the things I um, was most I think probably one of the emotions I felt 
most often during uh, the intense treatment was guilt. Um, being diagnosed with cancer uh, upended all of our lives. Um, we moved to Seattle. Um, my aunt had a, a place in West Seattle, and so we moved in with her. Um, and then um, my mom uh, and her wife and Chalem uh, started a, a rotating schedule uh, where they would come down to Seattle to be with me, to support me, to take to appointments and things. Mm -hmm. And then they'd have to go back to work. Um, and it, it was all consuming for, for all of us. Um, and so I felt a lot of guilt about, um, stopping, uh, stopping their plans. Um, just before we were going to, uh, so I got diagnosed, uh, in early December and our plan that year, um, was to go to Europe for Christmas. We were going to do a, a three-week trip a, as a family. Um, and of course, that that got canceled. And so um, I felt a lot of guilt about being responsible uh, for ruining Christmas. Um, and uh, so I think when you, you... I think I dwelled on that quite a bit in terms of this burden that I'm creating on other people, um, that they have to help feed me and they have to drive me to these appointments and they have to help me stand up. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really didn't, didn't like that, uh, that time. Um, I think also in, in that, that dark place is the, um, that, brain fog that uh, the chemo brain was really weighing in heavily. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are a number of things that I, I couldn't do anymore. Um, one of my other hobbies is is playing video games, um, a lot of like Call of Duty and, and other shooter games. Um, and my brain was just operating too slow to be able to, to play those games. Uh, and so you start thinking about like, okay, well, uh, what am I going to do? I, I can't do these things that I normally do with my friends. I, I can't do them now. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to, to grab onto specifics of, of what that darkness was like, uh, other than it was uh, no fun. Uh, you, in some ways, I, I felt like a burden and I felt useless in some ways like what what am i doing what am i contributing to society right now other than uh being this blob on the couch watching a whole bunch of uh, pioneer woman cooking shows on on tv <laughs> in between appointments yeah you know something you said about video games um i can identify with because i don't play video games but i read a lot so i i was thinking of, of something like uh, how I would describe reading for me may be similar to what playing video games is to you, which is like, this is what you do with your downtime. You know, this is kind of how you keep yourself distracted and maybe even like kind of feeds your soul in a, in a certain amount of ways. And when a fundamental thing like that is, is taken from you, it's like, well, what else is there? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right. But I, I wasn't able to, do school. I wasn't able to do work. I couldn't engage in my hobbies. Uh, and I'm in that emotional place where I'm feeling like a, a burden on others. Um, mm -hmm. I think all those, those factors together 
made it for for not a great time. Any and you know that um, I can re remember uh, it being difficult, even like you mentioned reading. Uh, mm -hmm. I I I used to cruise Reddit all the time and just kind of scroll through it and absorb things. And I remember during treatment that I. I couldn't comprehend what I was reading on the post. So it's almost like my eyes were moving and I would uh, in one ear and out the other as I'm trying to, to comprehend information and it just wasn't working. Um, that, that was pretty scary. Did anybody help you get out of those feelings of guilt or was that something you did on your own? You know, I, we've talked about, I've, I've had, I had a lot of support and, um, and I think, a few times I communicated, I was feeling that way. And, and of course, as the great support team that uh, everyone was, uh, they would say, well, you're, you're not a burden. You're, you're not those things. We're, we're in this together. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the feeling still remained in, in some ways uh, today uh, is still lingering there. Um, I understand that I didn't choose cancer and my choices didn't, uh, uh, lead me to, to get cancer. Um, but in some ways I, I still feel responsible for upending my family's life for more than a year. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a little bit out of left field, but I'm hoping that we can, we can make it all mesh. <laughs> um, how would you describe your upbringing? I, I think that I was brought up with a lot of, love uh and attention um i think i had the opportunity to experience so many things at a young age um i think between um my mom being a single mom and uh, my grandparents um again that that support system being there um got the opportunity to travel so much and i've got the opportunity to uh, try out different sports when I was younger. I think I, I learned a lot of uh, life lessons um, along the way. I don't know. I, I'm really stoked with, with uh, growing up. I think I, I've got a pretty awesome family. And again, if you feel like answering this or, or not, just let me know. Um, but where was your dad? Yeah, um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was a bit younger. And uh, I, I think we, we had a, a distant relationship when I was younger. And uh, uh, as I, I grew older, I think that distance uh, continued. Um, and uh, so it, it, it wasn't really a, a factor, a huge factor in, in my growing up experience. Um, and, and so really the, the support came from uh, the other members of my family. And, and I'm so thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Was there any points in your treatment where maybe you thought about, you know, what your dad was doing or how he would be reacting to the situation if he were there? I wouldn't say that explicitly. Um, he did reach out during during treatment, um, but but you know, I I I I think that the the important part for me, I think about the the treatment it was really the support I had. Um, and I think that that I've mentioned the family a few times, but that extends beyond uh, to my my the my colleagues at work. Um, mm -hmm. It was 
so great to get mail from them um, and from from different friends uh, in Alaska, but to to get uh, random letters and notes over time. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of those things that before going through that experience, I was like, well, maybe I'll send a note, maybe I'll send a card, not so sure. But being on the receiving end of that, um, particularly when it's protracted uh, over over that year time, getting a, a random card six months down the line was was so great to, to know that someone's thinking about you, that you haven't mm -hmm. seen them in a long time, but they're, they're thinking about you and they're, they're checking in. And so I'd say in terms of what ended up occupying my time was um, receiving uh, those words of encouragement and then spending time writing cards back to folks. Mm -hmm. um, I think being able to share my gratitude with, with folks kept my spirits up. When I was 13, my dad and I were in this really bad car accident on the way out to Mammoth Lakes, California for nationals for snowboarding. Mm. And it was a head on. The doctor said that it was equivalent to driving like 120 or 160 miles an hour into a brick wall. Wow. I was in a coma for about a week. I broke my femur. I had to go through all of this like uh, cognitive therapy, things like that. But what you just said about people reaching out to you, you know, you reading these these notes, these cards of of these like really, you know, thoughtful get wells. Um, I remember I remember those cards like because I got those same cards when I was in the hospital and it it kind of does something to you. Like a little bit of like magic almost where, you know, there's some cards that I remember verbatim today. And <laughs> that person holds a special place in my heart. All of those people. Um, yeah, so I'm right there with you. Oh, that's so great. No, I, I feel similar. The having, having that type of communication, uh, in, in cards and, and some were electronic, like emails and, and Facebook notes and stuff, but having those kind of physical manifestations of, of cards and of, of notes, um, or, uh, somebody knew that I really liked M&Ms. And so, uh, every so often they'd, uh, anonymously send, uh, M&Ms through Amazon to the house. And it's just like <laughs> the coolest thing to have like uh, yeah. M&Ms delivered randomly. Uh, it, it really uh, was, was, was neat. Do any of those cards stand out to you? And maybe it's, it might be tough to like remember them exactly, but maybe do you remember like the sentiment? You know, um, I think one of the, I think there were a few that, that stand out. One one that stood out was um, my colleagues at work um, got together and built this scrapbook for me. Um, and uh, in the scrapbook, um, folks had a, a little card, uh, like a, a three by five card, and, and they were able to sign it, write words of encouragement. Some of them uh, doodled and did little drawings on it. And... Uh, I, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I think like there's always the time in the office where the, the birthday card gets passed around and everyone signs their name or something. Um, but the, the thoughtful messages that were written in there, um, I think, I think I opened it maybe a week ago uh, mm -hmm. just cause like uh, pretty regularly, I just go look at it and go like, Oh, that's, that's really great. And they were, they were from folks I expected folks that I work with on a day-to-day -day basis. But then um, there were also so many other folks in there that, 
Uh, I'd only had the opportunity to interact with a few times, um, but I said such sweet words and, and um, uh, really encouraging sentiments. So I think that was great. Uh, I think a, a, another note that was in there um, was actually a, a, a series of, of notes. I, I, I guess I'd just call it like continued support. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say maybe once or twice a month, they would send a, a card. Um, and it, it almost felt a little bit like the, the old timey thing before Facebook, um, where folks would kind of send out an annual fam- family letter yeah. uh, where they talked about like all the accomplishments they've done in the year and, and what exciting things have happened. Um, and so for this particular family, they they wrote in what had what had happened uh, to them and what exciting things were going on back home uh, over the past month, and it just seemed like one of those. It, it's really sentimental uh, because I wasn't expecting it from that family, um, and the persistence or the yeah, I guess persistence that it, that those messages continued uh, for my duration of treatment mm-hmm. uh, was was really great. In 2014, my mom had a heart event, and she was in the uh, the ER, then the ICU, and it was touch and go. And we thought she was going to die. Um, wow. The the doctors and the nurses they weren't really giving too much hope, um, and it was it was it was frightening um, on like a very like visceral like internal you know like gut. Uh, level but it also gave me so many like priceless interactions with my family and friends and you realize like these people do care you know we can all get so busy you know with like the hustle and bustle of daily life and work and you know focusing on a degree or focusing on a career that we don't really take the time to consider like each other. Um, I wonder if you feel like a repercussion of maybe thinking about your mortality and then having these interactions with your friends and family, these really like purposeful, thoughtful um, interactions has made you maybe more purposeful and thoughtful in life. Oh, that's a really great anecdote, Cody. But um, yes, I, I think I had a, a number of visitors come down kind of pre-COVID um, and I, I guess I wasn't expecting it. I, I, I don't know that I would have thought to, to go down to, to visit someone um, and uh, a, a few different really close friends came down to visit um, and that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the friends, um, we've been friends since preschool and I, I'd say we're more brothers than, than friends uh, mm-hmm. and we're not super affectionate. Uh, we, we just have a lot of hobbies we, we get to do and we hang out together a lot. And anyway, he, uh, he hugged me when, when he first got there and, and he saw me. Um, and that was the weirdest thing ever. Like, I, I can't remember the last time that he and I hugged. It, it has to be when we were in first or second grade. Um, and so that, that was, that was so cool. Um, and I think there's a, a meme going around, uh, that's something to the effect of, uh, normalize telling your bros that you love them and then yeah like, says, like <laughs> make it really weird and yeah. i think that, that really embodies uh probably my my sentiments and feelings after going through this is like 
you know what, like, you've just got to tell people that they matter to you and, mm -hmm. and that you really love them and enjoy spending time with them. Um, and I, I think that a lot of us go through our day to day and we think, oh, yeah, they, they know that I, I might feel that way or or you might you might say uh, in a kind of a passing uh, closing thought on a, a phone call and say, like, goodbye, I love you. Mm -hmm. um, but like really saying those words with intention, like, mm -hmm. hey, like, I love you. Um, yeah, I. I <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I think that is totally uh, a reflection of of how I, I see a lot of things now. Because with my mom being in the hospital, you know, that wasn't me, but, you know, I'm still experiencing it as, you know, her son. And it affected me in that way, you know, where I will talk to friends nowadays and tell them, like, you know, with, uh, you know, with purpose and thoughtfulness like hey i love you you know if, if you need any help or if you need anything you know don't hesitate to call me yeah that's so great it's one of those things that uh you could hear some someone listening to this could hear and they say yeah yeah okay i got it mm -hmm. um but having those those events that cause that to to be a feeling deep inside you that you you've got this need to communicate that like mm -hmm. no no like really i want to pause right now and make sure you know that i <laughs> love you like, yeah. you just like it like comes out of your body and you've got to like give it to them like here listen to me <laughs> and it's funny because it seems dorky until you start doing it and like you said it kind of feeds that that part of you that that needs to tell that person how you feel about them um, but we all always kind of like fight back because it seems kind of dorky or maybe a little embarrassing or not necessary until you encounter one of those situations that really make you think about your mortality, your friend or your family member's mortality. And at least where my mind goes next is I want our interactions to be meaningful and I don't ever want to leave one of those interactions without letting that person know that I care about them. Yes. So true. That, that's great. Okay. So we follow each other on social media and that's where I originally saw your post about being diagnosed with leukemia. And I remember that that post got a lot of reactions. How would you describe the reaction and response from your end? Completely overwhelming. I, I'm really fortunate that, and I think I've got a lot of really good friends. Um, but seeing that response is, is still overwhelming. I, uh, you know, Facebook has those memories. And so you can, you can pop up and, and see, uh, it, it reminds you when, when things come up and, and seeing folks support in there is, 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 is so great. I think I lost track of the question. Though. I'm sorry. One more time. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Um, I was I was asking, you know, how would you describe the reaction and response from your end? Mm. You know, from from all that feedback. Yeah, I think um, really overwhelming. Uh, having that response, the volume of response. Um, I think we we talked a little bit about the burden that I, I felt that I was being on others. And so, mm -hmm. um, I, 
wasn't sure how much to share on social media and uh, or or with others in general. Um, I mean, I don't want to be like a, a Debbie Downer and say like, oh, today I had a lumbar puncture. That, that makes it number 15, like a mm-hmm. spinal tap. That, like, <laughs> that's, that's no fun. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I think uh, I was able to, to share um, the highlights and the things that were important to me or the, the things that, that I was experiencing that were really uplifting. Um, and then um, my mom was, was really great uh, and built a, a page on this website called Caring Bridge. Um, and that was a, a method of providing kind of status updates of my health. Um, and so if folks wanted to, to dive into the gory details of, of what's going on, my mom would write the updates there and, and folks could, could tune in there. Um, or if folks just wanted to see uh, me when I had like my Britney Spears meltdown and, and shaved off all my hair that was falling out and mm. uh, just see a fun photo of that, then uh, they could see that on, on Facebook or Instagram, I suppose. Do you remember those initial comments, messages and phone calls that you received? I think in those first few months, um, I was doing a lot of internal processing and figuring things out. And um, you want to provide a, a response to folks when they say, like, thinking about you, caring about you, let me know if you need anything. You want to provide a more thoughtful response than thank you. Uh, but sometimes it's all all I could muster is, is thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, anyway, so I, I don't know that one of those kind of initial, um, responses stick out. Um, you know, I think, you know, there, there are, uh, the love languages that different folks have. And one of mine that, that ranks higher is acts of service. And so, um, someone, uh, one of our friends, um, set up a, a GoFundMe account, um, to help pay for, families travel back and forth from Anchorage to Seattle. Uh, another one um, mowed our lawn uh, and shoveled our driveway during the different seasons. And those were uh, someone else. We, we had a, a, a leak in our ceiling um, and another friend came over and uh, fixed the leak and patched the, the drywall. And, uh, oh, and I guess one more that, that I was thinking of um, the day I got sick, um, I had just ordered a new gun safe uh, from Costco and it got delivered that day in the garage. And it's a, a monster of a safe. It's, I don't know, seven feet tall. It's, it's huge. Um, and uh, it needs to be bolted to the floor. It needs to be leveled and yada, yada. Anyway, I didn't have time to do it. I got sick. I had to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and about a week later, seeing seven of my closest friends, my, my, best men from my wedding um in my garage on the security camera all working together to to put the safe right and get it set up and taken care of i I think i was (laughs) sobbing uncontrollably for hours (laughs) it's just so cool (laughs) to to see them uh stop what they were doing and and come over and, and help in that way um yeah that was really cool you know something that i've thought about whenever i've been in medical situations and thinking about my mortality are these specific images I have with my wife, Carrie. There's a few of them. One of them that sticks out in my mind right now. And 
that I really cling to and that I really cling to is of us traveling through Europe in 2011 after we graduated from college. And it's this kind of nebulous out of body image that I have of us just walking on the streets of a city in Europe. And it kind of speaks to me in a way of like individuality, you know, kind of breaking from, um, comfortability and exploration and I'm doing it with my favorite person in the world. And I was wondering if you have any images like that that you clung to with Shalem. You know, it, uh, it's similar actually, but uh, also in, in Europe, we, there was a, a, a trip where we went to Greece, Mykonos, um, and I got sunburned really bad. Um, and so I was kind of hiding out in the hotel for a few days. Um, but then near the end, uh, we got to go out and explore the, the island together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember this this image in my mind of, of him kind of walking ahead of me. And the, the streets are all white. Like the, the ground and the, the walls are all white. It's really kind of a, a radiant and then blue sky. Um, and then him just looking over his shoulder uh, and smiling. He, he had just found something that was really exciting and, and he wanted to, to show me. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so as, as you're describing that moment with you and Carrie, it was like, oh, I, I have a similar thing with, with Shalem uh, for that, uh, that time in Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, that image really resonates. Um, Shalem and I's uh, first date. I, I used to do a lot of photography. He still does a lot of photography. Um, and uh back in the day i did a lot of uh self-portraits and so our first date was to go out and take pictures together Mm -hmm. um and uh in my truck i had this old sunny and share cd uh and it was all skipped up uh, all scratched up and so it would skip every so often and i just remember us driving out uh, towards the butte out in the valley and us singing along to uh, a particular song and then it would kind of skip out. And so then you would hear our voices instead of Sonny and Cher. Um, <laughs> and like, he's got a beautiful voice. I do not. Um, but just like that comfortability uh, and uh, connection we had from day one, um, th- that just kind of replayed in my mind a, a lot as well, uh, being together in that moment and just being comfortable with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those moments are so special because... From the outside looking in, you're just like, oh, there's there's two people just singing to a song in their car. But, you know, if if you or you or Shalem, you know how important it is. You know, like that image of, you know, me and Carrie walking down some unidentified street in in Europe, but then also thinking about all of the uh the subtext within that, you know, it means so much. Yeah, having those memories you built together, then um, you were there celebrating your, your accomplishments of just finishing college. Like then the, there's a lot baked into that, that image you have. Yeah, absolutely. And so you and Shalem have a toddler, correct? Uh, yeah, I guess I, I don't know. I think he's still a, a baby. Uh, he's 11 months old now. Um, oh, that's definitely a baby, not a toddler. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he's eleven months. Uh, his name is Porter, and uh, he he's so great. Um, 
And uh, so actually about uh, the, the summer before I was diagnosed, um, Shale and I decided that we were going to pursue surrogacy. And uh, so we went down to uh, a, a fertility clinic in Idaho. Um, and for lack of a better word, we, we made our donations there and, and they uh, <laughs> they uh, took what they needed to. Um, and anyway, they, they fertilized some eggs and, and the eggs, uh, the fertilized eggs were sitting on ice for a while. Um, surrogacy is not a uh, inexpensive <laughs> proposition. It, it takes mm. a little bit. So we were kind of saving our pennies of when, when we would uh, implant those, those embryos. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, as we're going through treatment, we uh, end up meeting uh, our surrogate um, who is, was just wonderful. And it was kind of one of those situations of a, a now or never um, timing with, with her. And so we were in the, the middle of the pretty intense part of, of treatment, and we made the decision to go forward with the, the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm so glad we did. The, the pregnancy went well, and, uh, and then now we, got, we have Porter. Uh, it's almost a, a year later, and uh, he, he's so wonderful. We're, we're loving having him. How do you think your diagnosis and that journey has affected you as a father? I think it's affected me in being really intentional with my time. I think it's easy to to get lost on uh, the, the the little box of horror that we keep in our pocket and just scroll <laughs> yeah. forever and ever. Um, and so I think overall, it, it the the diagnosis and the treatment and, and that time has taught me to be more intentional with my time. Um, and so I think that's really enabled me perhaps in a way that I don't know I would have before, mm-hmm. um, to focus on spending time, uh, with Porter and, um, playing with him and, and, and practicing. I, I've never been much of a baby guy. I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked for when he gets old enough that he can talk and, and mm-hmm. we can go do things. Um, yeah. but I'm enjoying being a dad to a baby so much more than I, than I thought I would. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'd say probably it's shaped it in in terms of being intentional with my time so i guess that's the the happy note on the the negative note the uh the treatment uh not only was brain fog but also um the the chemo basically eats away at your muscles and so uh, i had to do a lot of work around becoming strong again becoming uh normal being able to to walk up and down stairs um and so for the first few months that, that we had Porter, things that uh, a normal dad would do, like uh, pick up your baby and, and uh, do like a play airplane or toss him up in the air and, and catch him, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't able to do at first because I just wasn't strong enough. Um, and so that, that was a bummer at first. Uh, I'm strong enough now and, and really get to enjoy tossing him around and having fun, but yeah, I'd say that that affected it at first. Mm-hmm. I really like what you said earlier about kind of this this refocus or maybe even more attention paid to being intentional with your time. Because at least in my experience, every time I have these like really 
pivotal moments in my life where it really makes you pay attention and really makes you consider the important fundamental parts of your life, you know, to focus on love rather than hate, to let people that you care about know that you care about them. Um, it's almost like it, uh, it's like this needed kick in the ass, you know, or, or even like a reset and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. It's pretty simple. You know, like I, I just need to tell people I love them. I need to be positive, but those things are actually pretty difficult to come by, you know, in, in normal life sometimes. Absolutely. There, there was a, um, I'm not sure who it was, but I've listened to a public radio story maybe 10 years ago now. Um, and someone was talking about uh, happiness. And one of the, the statements that they, they said resonated with me, and that's uh, happiness is a choice. We can have a lot of really crappy things that happen to us uh, or happen around us, and we can choose how we respond to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to say that we don't acknowledge the the crappiness of the situation. Um, but in terms of how much we let that affect us and how long we allow that to, to linger around us, um, that, that's a choice. Uh, and, and we can choose to deal with that frustration, that hurt, that anger um, in a positive way and and choose to move forward with, with happiness. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's also been uh, resonating with me more and more is passing that on, passing on that happiness. If, if we think about our interactions with others, there's kind of three ways that you can leave people an impression. You can leave them with a positive, a neutral, or a negative. And why would you want to go around spreading negativity to folks? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's no that's no good. You, you, you want to make people's day better if possible. And, yeah. and, and part of that is in how you uh, carry yourself and, and how you communicate with others and uh, that happiness part is is really important, and it's kind of self fulfilling too. Like, you could you can get in that mindset of saying like, "Hey, I'm happy. I'm going to have a, a good day, and we're going to work through this." Mm -hmm. And then like, just by focusing some energy on that, your day can be better, and you you can uh, be happy. Um, I don't. I imagine it sounds kind of frou frou, but it 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 really works. Oh no, I, I'm actually holding myself from completely agreeing with you and ruining your audio because I am in complete agreement because I, um, I really believe that when it, when it comes to positivity and kind of, uh, self-reflection and self-analysis, um, faking it till you make it is kind of like a really good motto. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if you feel like crap today and you think you're going to have a bad day, you're probably going to have a bad day. <laughs> but also, if you wake up and think you're going to have a good day, what what is that hurting? You know, mm -hmm. it, it's already setting a tone of positivity for the day. Absolutely. It, it it can set your day off to the right start. It allows that to be a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sure, things could, could happen that, that affected either way. But if, if you started off on that, that positive note... Um, that seems like a, a great way to, to start <laughs> every day. Yeah. Let's, let's hope for the best and let's call it a good day so far. What does being a cancer survivor mean to you? I don't know if I, I know the answer to that yet. Um, for some folks, they are 
able to absorb their um, experience with cancer as part of their identity. Um, they're able to do good works from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, uh, for example, like Keegan Randall is an amazing athlete. Um, has been really transparent about her experience with cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really inspirational for others. I don't know if that, if that's my path. Uh, it In some ways, I, I feel like I, I want to acknowledge, I don't want to brush under the rug that it happened, but it, I'm ready to, to move on and <laughs> get back to, to doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, the treatment plan I'm on um, uh, lasts for another two and a half years um, where I, I take daily chemo meds, uh, and then I fly down to Seattle once a month to get the lumbar punctures and the infusions of, of different chemos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I imagine for the next two and a half years, that's going to be a part of my identity in some ways. Um, but for now, I'm, I'm hoping that when I'm when I'm done with that, then I'm done with cancer. And and uh, I don't know, maybe I won't talk about it anymore. I don't I don't know. Yeah. Um, I like to think that that um, I could be a resource for for others who who might be going through cancer and um, uh, or or hard experiences and, and want to talk through it, but I don't know. I haven't figured out what my relationship with with cancer will be uh, mm-hmm. going forward once once I'm done uh, with the treatment. I really like the idea that we aren't defined by one thing; we are defined by the accumulation of our lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked a lot about your cancer diagnosis here today, but I wonder who you would like to be viewed as outside of all that. You're asking the deep questions, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Um, you know, I think I'd like to be viewed as someone who uh, is positive, um, someone who is helpful, um, someone who might make your day or your your experience in in life better i hope that uh, i'm viewed as a a trustworthy and loyal friend um, i hope that i'm able to provide the support to the people that i care about in the way that they need that support i, I hope i'm viewed with integrity so i guess those are those are elements that i that i, I would hope to be viewed from Mm -hmm. Well, Mitch, that does it for my questions. This has been, this has been awesome. And I really appreciate you being so candid about such a personal experience. My pleasure. Thank thank you for uh, asking so so long ago and uh, for being open to revisiting the topic now. Um, And I'm stoked to have the opportunity to chat with you about it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I, I think it, goes back to remembering to tell those that you love that you love them like verbalize it make it known make them feel weird about it um (laughs) you've got to you've got to tell folks that um some folks don't realize how important you are to them and so i think communicating that love as directly as possible is really a great way to move forward You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. 
You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 